Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 4. And, uh, hey, was it a wild week with the, the crazy weather and all that stuff? Uh, who lost power, by the way? A lot of people? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. All right, well, here we are picking it up in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 4. And uh, we'll start in verse 1. It gives me joy to be here in this with you today. Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 1, and this is God's word. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that uh, Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a, a, a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, uh, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you... A Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, folks, I want to get right to the main idea this morning, and the main idea is this, that no one is too high or too low for the gospel um, what we have before us is a lesson via comparison. If you remember that uh, uh, the story of Nicodemus has just come, and a lot of things are built on that gospel uh, presentation by Jesus to Nicodemus about being born anew, born again. Without that, no one can see the kingdom of heaven. So you've got the story of Nicodemus, a person who was high up. And now we go intentionally right to the story of the Samaritan woman, a person who is of low count. And uh, just like John the Baptist's ministry of baptism and repentance that we've been talking about over the past uh, few months, uh, and, and him preaching to the Jews, particularly, of ministry of baptism and repentance, um, it's a lesson that no one is too high or too low for the gospel. Even he's preaching to the Jews and the messages that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, one of the things I said in Colorado uh, I, I cited that very verse uh, from Romans 3, and um, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And uh, the idea is not that uh, we just kind of missed it a little bit. The idea is like throwing a snowball at a mountain. I mean, you don't even get near the mountain. It's not that you hit the mountain in the wrong spot and you almost made it. You fall short of the glory of God. You can't even hit the target. You can't even hit the mountain. Uh, that's the idea there, and, and of course, that's what's being preached in essence. Now, here's the problem of sin, if you'll forgive me for this illustration right away. Does anybody remember the movie The Help that came out a few years ago? Well, there's a scene in The Help um, where the, uh, the uh, main character lady who works for this family, uh, she's been uh, disrespected by the family, and, uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's quite full of uh, racial uh, uh, sadness and realities, and uh, so she's a really, really, really good cook, and uh, you remember the, 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 big, the big scene? She uh, makes this chocolate pie, 
for these, uh, these uppity uh, white people. And uh, she, she has uh, uh, baked her own poop into the pie. And uh, you're watching them eat this chocolate pie. And, you know, you're, it's not even conflicting. You're kind of like cheering it on, <laughs> honestly, in the movie. You're like, oh, that's pretty awesome. Uh, and culinarily difficult uh, to mask uh, all that. But, but uh, hey, folks, was there something delicious in that pie? Absolutely. There was cocoa powder and probably vanilla extract and probably egg yolks and flour and good things in that pie. There were good things in that pie. But there was also poop in that pie. And uh, the illustration is this, friends. God doesn't want your pie. That's the problem of sin. God doesn't want your pie. He doesn't want, oh, I've got these good ingredients in here, God. Uh, You've got to admire that. No, no, no. You're filth. That's, a, that's the problem of sin. There's filth. Um, that, that's the news flash. Um, but there's good news for the sinner, and the good news for the sinner is that no one is too high or too low for the gospel. So let's look at our uh, first of two points. Uh, point number one, I just love this, um, is the Savior's appointment. Let's look at verses one through three. It says, um, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had uh, heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples. Um, uh, it goes on to say in verse 3, he left uh, Judea, departed again for Galilee. And uh, we read that and we go, okay, that's straightforward enough, no big deal. Um, uh, we understand what that means. Uh, Pharisees hear what's going on, just like they investigated John. They're probably going to investigate Jesus, so he leaves. And he goes from Judea, and he departs and goes to Galilee. Judea's down here. Galilee's up here. Here's what a map looks like. You can see it, Judea. Uh, you can see that Samaria's in the middle, and that Galilee's up on top, and we go, okay, that's easy enough. We understand that. Uh, great. Um, his ministry was on the move, and, and, and so on. Uh, simple enough. Look at verse 3 again, though. He left Judea, departed again for Galilee. We uh, think nothing of that, especially after viewing a map. We go, no big deal. Yeah, we see it, straight line. Okay, look at verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. Again, we go, what's the big deal? I mean, Judea, Galilee, Samaria's in the middle. He goes up there. We read that and we go, eh, so what? Um, Verse 4, he had to pass through um, uh, Samaria. Uh, Well, let's pause for a moment. What is the big deal about Samaritans? Uh, What is the history? Well, turn, if you would, to the book of 2 Kings. So go to your Old Testament or click on it or whatever you need to do. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Kings. So 2 Kings um, chapter 15, let's look at it together. Chapter 15 of 2 Kings, verse 27 um, it says this, in the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned for 20 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which uh, he made Israel to commit. Um, flip ahead to, um, oh, let's see, flip ahead to chapter 17, verse 24. So we got a bad situation with, uh, with Israel, and this, this guy um, 
This uh, guy, um, Azariah, is really the last uh, of the kings there, and it says um, that God judges the people of Israel. And here's what happens in chapter 17, verse 24 of 2 Kings. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Zerahvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. You get what's happening? The Assyrians come down. They take the residents of the northern kingdom away and replace them with Assyrian people, right? That's called taking and occupying the land. They've taken the residents out. They send Assyrians down. They're occupying the land. It says they took possession of Samaria, lived in its cities. And in verse 25, at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Now skip down to uh, verse um, 27. Then the king of Assyria commanded, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell and teach them the law of God and so on in the land. Skip ahead to verse 29. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities in which they lived. Skip ahead to verse... Uh, well, no, no, let's keep on reading. Let's keep on reading. This is terrible. The men of Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth, the men of Kuth made Nurgle, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Saravites burned their children in the fire. And so, you see what's happening? Uh, the Assyrians come in, they take out the residents of the land, the Israelites, they carry them off into captivity. They send um, uh, Assyrians down there in the, in the land to live in Canaan, and uh, they're worshiping idols and even sacrificing their children to these uh, gods. So not worshiping as God wanted his people to worship in the land. Um, So they serve their gods and so on. And uh, look at verse 41 of chapter 17. It says, these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise and their children's children as their fathers did, so they do to this day. So there's this strangeness. They come down and in some sense they fear God, but they're also idol worshipers. I don't know if you've ever been in New Orleans, but it's conflicting down there. It's kind of like Catholicism and voodoo have a love child, and that's the religion of New Orleans. It's very weird. There's a lot of voodoo um, mysticism stuff down there that's real spooky and dark and weird. It's this alloyed religion. And so what you have in the land of Samaria here is this alloyed religion. And uh, that's why Jews didn't like Samaritans. All those years later, there was all this intermarrying going on and so on, and you had this alloyed faith this idol worshiping and Yahweh all kind of mixed together, and that is not what God wanted. And so uh, they, they were despised by the Jews. Now, you can see why it would be strange for a Samaritan woman to have an opportunity to have an encounter with Jesus. Um, skipping ahead to Jesus' day, um, she wouldn't even have been welcome in the land. No, no Jew would want her near the Savior and um, it's not that she just wouldn't fit in, it's, it's that she wouldn't have been received. Uh, she wasn't a Jew, and her life, the way she lives, we'll see next time, uh, gives her no credibility uh, at all, and she full well knows it. I mean, back in our passage, uh, she says uh, in verse 9, um, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She's got a lot of stuff going against her. She's a Samaritan, she's a woman, 
And uh, as we'll see next week, her life is, uh, is kind of goofed up, and she knows it. Now, back to our map and uh, back to this situation. Judea, Galilee, Samaria. Uh, we go, great, no big deal. It says in verse 4, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Here's the thing I want to show you, and here's why we're talking about all this stuff and all the difficulty with Samaritans. It says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Guess what? Jesus did not have to pass through Samaria. Why does it say he had to pass through Samaria when this is a reality? Look at this map. Common trade route. Common route for the Jew to leave Judea, cross the Jordan, go up to avoid Samaria. Now, this is a, a picture of, actually, this is from Matthew. This is Jesus' return to Judea, uh, a map there, okay? So G- Jesus does kind of cut through the top of Samaria there. But you can see there's a, there's a route that Jews would summarily take. They would leave Judea, they'd go across, they'd go up, and they would bypass Samaria to get up to Galilee, that was commonplace. They didn't want to go through Samaria. In fact, um, oh, we'll talk about more in a minute what some rabbis have said and so on. But um, so to this map, you can see Jesus didn't have to pass through Samaria. He didn't have to. He could take this route, which is, was, what was the common Jewish route. Now, why does it say that Jesus had to pass through Samaria? Well, maybe there was a time constraint and he couldn't go over and so on and he had to go straight up. Maybe it was that. Maybe there was some kind of water issue with the Jordan River. It was too high, he couldn't do it. Maybe he just went straight up. Uh, Maybe there was some other issue that was unknown. But I submit to you that this is telling telling us something very specific about Jesus and the way God works in salvation. It says that he had to pass through Samaria. He didn't geographically have to, but he had to. And I'm telling you that he had to because he had an appointment with somebody. And it was the Samaritan woman. You know, um, we'll see this next week, but in verse 16, he says, go call your husband. And uh, she's like, oh, how do you know that? And he says, actually, in verse 18, you have five husbands. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus already knew her. (laughs) He already knew about her circumstances. And when it says that he had to pass through Samaria, it means that he had to pass through Samaria to go meet somebody in love. He had an appointment with her. He had to pass through Samaria. Now, um, what's an application for your life? Well, our grace group uh, in the last year, I don't know what you guys do, but we've been doing this thing that we really enjoyed, uh, at least I have, is um, I'll just pick a passage in the Bible. I'll just pick some passage, I'll flip through it and just kind of see what God lays on my heart, and I'll assign it to our grace group. We'll read it, we'll write down some notes on it, we come together and uh, we worshipfully discuss it, and it is rich, it is wonderful. Well, let me tell you, um, I blew the minds not I, the Bible, Jesus, the Savior, blew the minds of some of our grace group a few months ago when our passage was John 17, uh, which is the, the, the high priestly prayer. You know, what we call the Lord's Prayer in, in Matthew uh, 6 is really not a prayer that Jesus prayed. It's how he teaches us to pray. He says, this is how you should pray. All right, so the real Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus actually prays is in John 17, and I challenge you. Go home, read John 17 slowly 
and out loud, it will blow your mind. Um, Jesus prays these things about um, uh, his hour coming. You know, all through his ministry, he says, oh, my hour has not yet come. Uh, But in John 17, just in the shadow of the cross, right before the cross, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. You've given him all authority over flesh. I mean, Jesus realizes he's in the shadow of the cross. He says, my hour has come. That's what he prays in John 17. You know what else he prays? It's amazing. If you want to flip to it, that would be a good thing. Um, John 17, uh, verse 6. You want your mind blown? Listen to this. Uh, Jesus praying to the Father right before the cross. John 17, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. So the Father gave Jesus people. I wonder what people. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. They have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. Now skip to verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. That that will mix it up for you, won't it? He's saying two kinds of people in this world. I mean, it's it's the scriptural picture that's all through the Bible. There are two kinds of people, and Jesus is saying, I am praying for them. There's a certain kind of people. And he says, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Oh, that's staggering. (coughs) Now, what are we to do with the Savior's own words? He articulates a distinction, as I said, that's present throughout the Scriptures, that there's two kinds of people, children of light, children of darkness, Um, the righteous, the wicked, uh, the lovers of God's law who delights in his law, and the scoffers. Um, there are the spiritually living, there are the spiritually dead. There's the spiritual man, there's the natural man. Uh, I love quoting 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So again, what do we do with the Savior's (coughs) prayer that he's not praying for the world, but those whom the Father has given him? What do we do with that tension? Here's my advice to you. Here's what you do with it. Worship God in wonder and awe over grace. It is hard to understand. But if you love the Savior and you believe the Savior and you want the Savior, the Savior that's in the Bible, this is what he's praying. And I think what we can take away from it is this. He had to go to Samaria. If you find yourself interested in holy things, if you find yourself drawn to worship this God, if you find yourself joying to be under the authority of this book, if you love this book and you love to be under it, your soul is glad to yield to it, what does that mean? It means that Jesus had to go get you, that Jesus had an appointment with you, that Jesus loves you personally, not just generally, but you. 
Now, I'm a mortal man, and I can't perfectly explain uh, divine mystery. I can't do it, but I can tell you this. Jesus makes and keeps his appointments. And another way to put it might be this way, Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. All right, our second and the last point, the gospel according to Jesus. Um, as I said, many, if not most Jews, would skip Samaria, uh, just go completely around it, take the long way. One famous rabbi, uh, a, um, a first and second century rabbi, he was part of a group of teachers and sages, um, uh, and he taught this, that uh, he that eats the bread of the Samaritans is like one uh, that eats the flesh of swine. So you know that uh, Jews, kosher people, uh, couldn't eat swine, and they were saying if you eat the bread of Samaria, even the bread from the land of Samaria, it's like eating swine. Um, any devout Jew hated Samaria and Samaritans and would avoid them like poison. But that didn't matter to Jesus. Um, in uh, Luke 5.31, he says, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus isn't looking for goody two-shoes. He's looking for the goofed up. He's looking for the broken. He's looking for the hurting, the limping, the aching, the ones who are asking deep questions and, and just have a vacuum in their soul. He's looking to help the person who's hurting. Is that not a lovely and encouraging thought, y'all? There was something else that didn't matter to Jesus, and it's this, that he, he approaches this woman. It says in verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and then it says, Jesus said to her, and that could be a sermon just in itself, Jesus said to her. We read this and we go, oh, what's the big deal? You know, uh, uh, you know men and women, and it's great, and uh, you know, it's, 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 it, everything's even more than equal because men now have to be, uh, you know, feminized a little bit, uh, and, you know, the toxic masculinity and all the stuff that's in the news. It's so horrible. By the way, I read, <laughs> I read a couple months ago, somebody was saying that uh, breastfeeding should be uh, disallowed because it's sexist. <laughs> and I'm like, Wow. Well, tell that to a goat. I mean, <laughs> what are you going to do? Uh, anyway, um, <clears throat> yeah, they can't buy baby formula at the goat baby store, you know. Um, but um, it's hard to understand the position of a woman in our culture today. Religious leaders, I'm sure you've heard this, would pray, uh, thank God. Uh, thank, they would thank God that they weren't a, Samaria, a Samaritan, and also they would thank God that they weren't born a woman. Well, that's not a very high view of, the, of image bearers of God, is it? Um, a rabbi, did you know, would sacrifice his reputation if he talked to a woman publicly, even if it was his wife or daughter? They wouldn't even talk to women publicly. It was just, it was a bad scene, not respected. Uh, and here you have Jesus smashing categories. He goes to this woman, uh, she's a Samaritan. He goes to a woman. She's also got a, a tricky situation and a, and a difficult, uh, kind of uh, gnarly, tangled up past. But he smashes categories and approaches her in love. Um, and, and he even says, uh, he even says uh, uh, give me a drink in verse 7. I mean, there was no sharing of bread. There were no sharing of utensils <laughs> with a Samaritan. Um, that, that, that was, that was out, way out of bounds. And the, the point is the Savior had an appointment, and he went to this person specifically. He didn't feel like she needed to be cleaned up before he approached her. Um, he, he didn't, he didn't uh, expect her to fix herself. He went to her, 
as she was. Application for you. That's what Jesus did for you. I mean, he had an appointment with you, and he went to somebody who was tangled up inside. And by the way, we're still tangled up. I mean, God is in the business of changing us and making us more like Jesus and, and um, affecting our lives and, and, and changing our affections, all right? But, but the application for you is to, is to follow what Jesus is doing here. He smashes categories and approaches um, the unlovely. He approaches the, the messy and tricky and complicated. Now, I am in vocational ministry, and so most of my ministry, not all of it, but most of my ministry is to saints. I mean, I know that people come in here, and I, I, I try to articulate the gospel and, and so on, but um, my job is uh, what it says in Ephesians 4, which is I'm supposed to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I've heard Jonathan Todd say that a hundred times. We're here to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Yes, we are. That's my job, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You know why? Because you're out there at your offices and with your friends and in your carpool line and school and all that kind of stuff. You are the ones who are dispersed in the world. My job primarily is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And, uh, you know, I, I do try to throw the net out there, um, but uh, that's my main gig. And uh, you go, oh, well, that's pretty easy. Uh, you don't even have to do, do, uh, do anything out there in the world. Well, let me tell you this. Before I was in this ministry job, I had some unique opportunities. In fact, I viewed them as, um, as being uh, kind of training ground for what I'm doing right now. I got a, just a few examples for you. I think I might have told you at some point that I worked at 201 Poplar down back in the day. Just not very long. I was a, kind of a temporary government employee, but I was a court clerk. Uh, back when you could still smoke inside. Um, and so it was just stinky, and you just walked through that stinky area, and there were just people arrested all over the place, and you were dealing with bail bondsmen and crying grannies and arrested people themselves. People would come in, and they'd be like, yeah, I got an armed robbery, and I got a DUI, and I got a suspended license. They would be in two or three places uh, on the same day in different courtrooms. And uh, people would call in. You had to work the switchboard for an hour a day. And uh, people would call in, and they would have warrants out for their arrest, and it was just a mess. Like, everybody that came in there, their lives were just upside down, a mess. And uh, you know what I started doing? I had two 15-minute breaks a day. I started saving my 15-minute breaks, and uh, I would look for somebody who was in big trouble. And uh, not every day. But most days, I would find somebody, and they would be in trouble, and they, they, they would be distraught. Sometimes they'd be crying, and I'd say, I'll tell you what, I got a 15-minute break, and I know of one private bench underneath this thing that nobody really knows about. How about if we go over there and I pray for you? I did that regularly. I'm telling you, that's you. That's you out in the world. That's you with your radar on, not road raging, but looking for an opportunity to find someone who needs to hear about the gospel story. I got another illustration for you. When I was at Terminex, I was, that was, before the, I was there for three years. It was a job I had before I went into the ministry. I mean, I had these kind of salesmen and stuff, and, and um, I, I would just look for opportunities. It's, it's scary to be in the, in the secular world, so to speak, 
Um, you got to be careful with what you say to people and all that stuff. But I, I, I'll give you one example. There was this guy named Freddie. And uh, he was uh, like Italian and had this uh, accent and had a mustache and stuff. But I had noticed on Freddie um, several months earlier that he had cut marks on his wrists, you know, going the wrong way, this way. Um, but I could tell that he had tried to kill himself at, at some point. And so I just always had my eye out for Freddie. And uh, I, I remember one time Freddie was in big trouble financially, and he couldn't pay his MLG and W bill and uh, MLG and W. And um, I paid it for him. And I said, "Brother, uh, no need to pay me back, Freddie." Um, and that was an opportunity. And then his life kind of fell apart. He was in a marriage, and it broke up, and so on. And I remember being in a conference room with him, sharing the gospel with him, and praying with Freddie. It's another example. I got one more example for you. It's kind of funky. At Terminex, you know, we had a sales department, and there was like telemarketers. Uh, and so the salesmen could make money, and the telemarketers were just like mm, power dial, and they were just on the phone all day long. And um, they could talk, okay, so they were articulate, uh, articulate but they were, um, they were poor. They weren't making very much. And um, there were a hundred of them. And I noticed that a lot of them had problems with their glasses, like they were taped. There was a safety pin holding them together. They were dirty. They were falling down their nose. By the way, if you wear your glasses like this, it makes you look stupid. Make sure you push them up. But I mean, a lot of them had, they were just ill-fitting glasses. And, and I just noticed that people had a lot of problems with their glasses. And so I started a glasses repair ministry. I had a kit of all kinds of teeny tiny little screws and screwdrivers and replacement things, and I had hinges and stuff. And um, I would say, hey, uh, I'll tell you what, can I borrow your glasses for just about 30 minutes to an hour? I just want to make a few repairs on them. I can't tell you how many pairs of glasses I fixed. I would wash them off in the sink, and I'd polish them up, and I'd repair them, and I'd bend them back, and I'd give them back to them, and I'd fit them to their face. And it was this kind of like quiet little weird ministry that I was able to, to achieve. I'm encouraging you to go do the same thing. I'm encouraging you to look out at this world and say, I, I'm going to make an appointment with somebody. I'm going to zero in on them, and I'm just going to try to show them love. I, you don't have to cram the gospel down their throat and try to close the deal. But you do want to love them, engage with them personally, so that when their life does kind of fall apart, you might find yourself in a conference room praying with them and sharing the gospel. Just a couple more things that I, we, we, we got to quit. Um, um, turn, if you would, to uh, Ephesians 4, um, verse 11. This is the verse that I was talking to you about. Um, and, and when we preached through Ephesians uh, a while back, a couple few years ago, I made a big dramatic point about this. It says um, that um, uh, Jesus gave the apostles, comma, the prophets, comma, the evangelists, comma, the shepherds and teachers, comma, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, comma, for building up the body of Christ. In the original Greek, there's no punctuation. And so some Bible translations will goof it up, and they will say, verse 11, he gave, Jesus gave the apostles, comma, the prophets, comma, the evangelists, comma, the shepherds and teachers, comma, to equip the saints, comma, and ain't no comma belong there. The idea is <coughs> to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And 
If you put a comma in there, it flips the whole thing on its head and says, oh, let the professionals handle it. It's not, that's not what we're to do. I <coughs> am to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and you are to go make appointments. Um, just look at Jesus. Uh, move toward the unlovely. Move toward the unlikely. Uh, touch the leper. Drink out of the cup of the Samaritan woman. Uh, go to the imperfect. Go to the messy, both inside and outside the church. Don't feel like you've got to fix them so that they can receive the gospel. Forget all that. It's a mess. Everybody's a mess. God's in the fixing business. What you need to do is love them. Go make an appointment and be ready to show them uh, the reason that you've got hope in your life. And I, I, I close with this. Pray that God will expand opportunities for you. Uh, I think it's a prayer that uh, you'll find he answers <laughs> surprisingly. Pray that. God will surprise you. Let's close in prayer. Lord, uh, we praise you and thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. It is a mystery indeed. Uh, this thing called grace, this thing that we haven't deserved, this thing that is so hard to understand that's divine, um, but we joy to see the Savior making an appointment with the highly unlikely, trudging into a strange land, smashing categories, and um, going to people just as they are. Uh, That's what you did for us, Lord. We pray that we might do it uh, to others so that you would be glorified and that uh, Jesus might be received. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate you.